God forms his creation, and then in the latter three days, God fills his creation. So in days one through three, which we'll look at today, the, uh, the day and night are separated as God creates light. Let there be light, and there was light. He saw that it was good, and the good and the light separated the light from the darkness. And the light he named day, and the darkness he named night. And the land and the sea are distributed, and on the third day, the earth sprouts with vegetation. There are other things that occur during those days, for sure, but we'll talk about them as we work our way through these days. And then days four through six, uh, the Lord fills his creation. He's formed his creation, and then he, he fills it. Then day six is the, the pinnacle of, of God's work of creation as he creates man in his own likeness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, verse 26. So as one person has expressed it, God's plan is in making a home for man and, and the creatures and then creating occupants for the home that he has created. So he forms his creation and then he fills his creation. So day one, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, as we work our way through the, the, these opening verses, there are several words, and every single one of them has so much importance when, he uses, when uh, Moses uses the word created, he uses a Hebrew expression that literally means to create brand new, not out of anything pre-existing. So all of these words have great importance. Uh, they, they, they're carefully chosen. Formless and void, well, we'll talk about what that means. It, 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 it means that it was empty and unformed. Uh, darkness, how did that occur? Uh, the Spirit of God, and so we see... Uh, multiple persons in the Godhead. We see Elohim, God created. That's Elohim. It's a plural expression, but it, it suggests a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead, but we'll actually see that there are three persons in the Godhead in the opening verses of Genesis 1. But it's a plural of majesty. It's an expression that Moses used to talk about the majesty of God. We see God saying things. He, he, says, he declares that there be, and immediately there is. So he speaks, and creation exists. And he sees, and he makes a determination that what he makes is good, what he declares is good. He, he makes that determination. That's an act of his dominion over what he has made. He's characterizing what he's made as good. And he calls them. He, he names what he creates. And that's another expression of his dominion over his creation. And then we see the expression evening and morning and one day. And, and the, the day in this first series is, is a, uh, uh, to differentiate it, sometimes Moses will use uh, a, a day like second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. This one means literally day one. It's a different expression, but he's saying that this time period characterizes one day. And the other days are just like it. So we literally have six normal days, six 24-hour days. And they're all created by God, and as he creates, as he speaks all this into existence. 
So he, he brings, we use the expression, it's a Latin expression, but it's been used over the centuries, creation ex nihilo. It's, it literally means out of nothing. And one of the, the reform catechisms of Westminster says, God's creation is God's creating everything out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. That's a very concise, very accurate, very rich way of describing God creating everything by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. We'll see God characterizing all that he had made in in verse 31 of uh, Genesis 1. So God creates uh, everything in this time period in the past and he brings it into existence literally out of nothing. He, he speaks and suddenly it, it, it happens. So there's a number of issues that sometimes we, we encounter in looking at day one, Genesis one in particular. And the first one is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some people over the years have looked at Genesis one one as a summary statement of what follows, sort of like a, a title sentence. And the issue with that is if it's a title sentence, then the actual work of creation begins in verse 3. And if that's the case, then, then that creates uh, an understanding that God is creating out of pre-existing material, which would be completely contrary to creation ex nihilo, or out of nothing. So creation literally commences in verse 1. And, and that's, that's an important distinction. The, the vast majority, top of page 2, of conservative scholars have looked at Genesis 1-1 not as some type of summary of what follows, but as an actual statement of creation. John Calvin actually made the observation that the Hebrew word that Moses used, uh, bara, it means original creation. When that word is used, it's, it's used in a very restrictive fashion. God uses another word for make when he talks about the firmament that has a wider range of meaning. It can mean creating out of something pre-existing, but in every case, when the God uses this word bara, it literally means that it's brand new, that it, nothing has pre-existed. God is always the actor when he uses this expression. It's, it's, it's not used as, as often as some of the other words, but it's very restrictive in its sense, and there's no misunderstanding about what it means. It literally means that God spoke it into existence, he declared it, and it was. So we, we dealt with this in the past, but when we looked at this opening word, God created the heavens and the earth, uh, it's a literary figure called a merism. And you can look at it as sort of bookends. Uh, it's, it's an expression that means that he created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. It means the totality of everything that exists, God made. Nothing exists that he did not make simply by declaration. And so he literally is speaking the universe into existence by his declaration that God created the heavens and the earth. But it, it's more than simply a literary figure of speech called a merism. It, it speaks of God creating material world and an immaterial world. So sometimes if you're wondering where God created angels when he created um, his own throne, so to speak, the parts that we don't see, uh, then that's included in this expression, the heavens. It, it, the, the earth speaks of the tangible, the material world, and so uh, historically uh, people have looked at 
including the Council of Nicaea, where they, they made an attestation that God created literally everything uh, from material to immaterial to what we can see and what we can't see. So we need to always remember that when God spoke everything into existence, he created a number of things that we literally don't see. Uh, angels, for instance, we don't typically see. They can materialize. They do take form. They do express themselves. But God created the angelic realm. He created his own throne. He created the, the uh, parts of the universe that we don't see, but they're very much as real as the parts that we can measure, that we can observe, uh, that we can uh, examine, that we can behold. But God made all of these things, uh, the material world and the immaterial world. Down at the bottom of page two, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, in, in creating the Nicene Creed, they, they began by saying, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And that's what's capsulated in the expression heavens and earth, all things visible and invisible. And what will happen in the summary of creation, as Moses records it for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he's going to be focusing on the material world that God has created. But understand that simultaneously he also created, God did, the, Im the immaterial, the spiritual world as well. So I'm over at the top of page three of the notes now. Hebrews 11.3, from a New Testament perspective, uh, the scripture says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so this talks about the creation ex nihilo, or out of nothing. Now another question that sometimes comes up, and, some, and actually... Uh, it was part of my understanding many years ago when I first became a believer. Someone gave me a, a Schofield Bible, and I benefited greatly from the Schofield Bible. But if you look at the notes in Genesis, it has what's called the gap theory. Uh, the gap theory is that in between verse 1 and verse 2, that there could be millions of years. And why did that exist? Well, Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s, a good man, Thomas Chalmers uh, did a number of good things, but... He was, in addition to being a theologian, he was also a geologist, and he began to look at what was then the prevailing understanding of the geological record as being very, very, very long, and so he wanted to harmonize uh, scripture and science. When you see the word harmonize, that should put a red flag in your understanding because we don't need to harmonize scripture with, under, with science, we need to harmonize science with scripture. Uh, because the, the authority that we have is what God has declared. Science is a moving target. It, it's always progressing. The scripture is, is final. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. But the, his understanding was that you had this angelic rebellion, which the scripture clearly uh, makes reference to when Satan, uh, when Lucifer became Satan and, and a number of angels fell with him uh, in the primeval past. Um, it, that was when allegedly this occurred in between verse 1 and verse 2. And the result of that angelic rebellion was there was devastation in God's creation. And so they would look at, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, uh, the scripture says the earth was formless and void, but they saw that as became formless and void. But the scripture doesn't mean became, it means was formless and void. So number one, there's no basis for understanding the gap theory as uh, an accurate understanding of scripture. There's no reason to insert 
the angelic rebellion at this point in time. There's no reason to, uh, to see devastation on planet Earth as a result of this. It was an attempt to find a place to uh, express what happened when Satan became, when Lucifer became Satan, when you had the fall from, uh, from uh, his pure state into his fallen state. From a linguistic standpoint, um, this, the scripture talks about, uh, verse 2, that this was the condition of what God had created. There was nothing um, devastated about it. There was nothing uh, wrong with it. It was just simply unformed. So God created the heavens and the earth, and then what he does in the ensuing verses is he shapes what he had made. He doesn't reshape it. He doesn't reform it. He doesn't reconstruct it. He's forming it. He's shaping it. He's creating uh, form out of what had previously existed. And that's what the scripture refers to is when in verse 2 is the earth was formless and void. There's no thrust to this meaning that it became formless and void. It simply means that in the Hebrew expression would mean that it is empty and unfilled. And that's exactly how God created the earth, that it was a, a, a mass of water primarily. Uh, there could have been earth underneath it, but primarily water because the scripture talks about darkness was upon the face of the deep and uh, the Holy Spirit was move, moving there as well upon the waters. Uh, but you, you have this mass of creation that God had, had made and then he begins to shape it. He begins to form it. He begins to add details to what he'd made. It's, it's, if I can use an analogy, it would be like a, a, a painter having a canvas and you'd, you'd create uh, a, a bit of a structure and then you would fill it in. You would begin to give the details. You begin to manipulate uh, the image and that's exactly what God did. Uh, he created literally the, all the raw materials that he needed and then he formed and filled uh, out of that. So that's really why the, the gap theory, even though it was popular probably in the late 1800s and, and early to mid 1900s, it, it really has very little uh, backing, very little followership follow, uh, behind it. Uh, but So God was not destroying, uh, but he was creating. So that's on, on top of page four. Um, in verse three, where we are is uh, what's, what's interesting is in verse 3, God said, let there be light. So we've talked about verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void or empty and un, unfilled. And then God said, let there be light. Now this is still in day one. So God is, is looking at what he has made, and he is speaking into existence light. And sometimes uh, people will struggle with this because the planets, uh, the sun and the moon were created on day four. So sometimes people will say, well, how can it be that, that we have light in day one and we have the sun and the moon and the stars in verse four? Is there a contradiction here? Is there an inconsistency? Should we look at this as the sequence which God has created uh, in Genesis one? There's no problem whatsoever. All you really need to have light and darkness is God literally creates light. He himself is light. And in, in the, the final condition of creation, he, there will be no sun because God himself is, is the light. And so God speaks light into existence. Now he later will add uh, the sun and the moon and he will add the planets and he will add the stars and he'll add all of the, the things that are in, in the heavens. Uh, but at this point, the light bearers aren't mentioned, but he, he himself speaks into existence the light. That's at the bottom of page four. So one person has noted, Joel Beakey makes the, the comment that the eternal city 
will enjoy, this is the top of page five, will enjoy endless light without the help of the sun or the moon, Revelation 22, verse five. There's an example of, of God himself being all the light that, that is in existence. So why couldn't there be light at the beginning of time before the luminaries were made? There's no problem whatsoever. God simply brings light. So then you've got this definition of a day, uh, day one, all that's really required for that is a, the mass of creation, the earth is rotating, and you've got a stationary light figure. So on the other side of the, the mass that God had created on, on day one, you have darkness. And on, where the light is shining, you have light. And so you've got a rotating mass that he's forming. That ultimately will take place in one of the, the later days. But God himself speaks light into existence and creates this alternating sequence of darkness and light, which he then says, that's a day. And there's no reason to understand that as anything different than the day that we have because he, the night and the, and the day. So God produces all the light that he needs. So what we've seen is that we, we mentioned earlier that, um, that God himself in his triune character is pictured in the opening chapters of Genesis, in Genesis 1 in particular. And you say, well, how is that? Well, in, in verse 1, uh, God uses the term Elohim, uh, where he speaks of himself, the Father. And then it, the, the Spirit of God is moving or hovering over the face of the waters in verse 2. Now, where is the Son of God in this, the second person of the Godhead? And, and you should expect that the Lord Jesus would be present in this record as well. And, and why do we say that? Because the scripture in Colossians 1, verse 16 says that, uh, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. So that being the case, where do we find a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ? If all things were created by him and for him, that, that means there was nothing that is accepted from that. And that, that the language, interestingly enough, all things were created in heaven and on earth uh, in Colossians 1, resembles very closely Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it also re resembles very closely John chapter 1, uh, which uses essentially the same language. So Hebrews 1, 2, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, speaks of Christ as the heir of all things through whom God created the world. So where is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? We have an explicit reference to the Father, in, in making the, the, the heavens and the earth, we have an explicit reference to the Spirit of God moving or hovering over the, the surface of the deep, uh, of the waters. And the answer to that, where is the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is, is given in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, or God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And John, the Gospel of John, says, that, relates this to Christ by speaking about Jesus as what? The divine word. The, the, the Word of God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we know for a fact, based on the New Testament record, that the Son of God himself was present and instrumental in creation. Colossians testifies to that. Hebrews 1 testifies to that. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 very clearly references that. And so you have a linguistic link in the New Testament back to Genesis 1, 
uh, verse 3, where God says, let there be light. He speaks and he declares, and there is. And, and so you, you literally have all three persons of the Godhead, two of them explicitly mentioned, and one of them by the testimony of the New Testament very clearly attested as well. Uh, so all things were made through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all uh, doing their work. What's, what's also interesting is if you look at uh, pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. Does that sound familiar? It does. It's Hebrew, that's Genesis 1, verse 3. Is the one who has shown in her hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul actually identifies creation and the new creation with, through the gospel, through regeneration, uh, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the work of creation in Genesis chapter 1. So it's interesting that Paul goes very explicitly back to the creation of light to, to make this connection with the new birth uh, through in, in the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. So you've got the presence of all three persons of the Godhead in the, uh, in the creation itself. Now, one of the implications of that is consider what we are referring to when we talk about the humiliation of Christ. We, we speak of the exaltation of Christ in his resurrection and his exaltation in his ascension, uh, his reign uh, at the right hand of the Father. But we also speak of the humiliation of Christ, where the, the, literally God himself takes on human flesh, uh, born of the Virgin Mary without sin, uh, suffered uh, under, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That all refers to the humiliation of Christ. Those are the, the states of Christ, the humiliation and the exaltation. But here you have, imagine this, God himself who spoke the entire world into existence and nothing was made without him. All things were made for him. All things were made by him. That person and the Godhead literally took on human flesh, suffered on our behalf, was crucified on our behalf, died on our behalf. God himself, who made the world, literally died for us. And so we, we, it, this should be, it really, it, it brings into stark relief the humiliation of Christ, that God himself, who has existed from all eternity, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, took on human flesh, and suffered for us, the very one through whom, for whom, and by whom all things were created. It, it puts the humiliation of Christ, I think, into, into stark relief as we, as we consider that. Uh, Sidney Gradanus says, the king of the universe became a slave. When the world was headed for destruction, God spoke his word again through Jesus. The word of God, Jesus, created this world, and the word of God, Jesus, will redeem this world, or has redeemed uh, this world. So day two, uh, by way of transition, and God says, let there be an expanse. Some of your translations, if you've got the King James, it says firmament uh, in, the, in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. God made, and, and, and Moses uses a different word here. He does not use barah. He uses a, a word with a broader range of meaning. And it very well means he's reshaping what God created in verse 1. But God made or structured the expanse or the firmament and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning one day, or second day. Now, what is the expanse? 
What is the firmament? I, I've always wondered what that was. What, what, what in the world is the firmament or the expanse? This word includes, but is not limited to, the atmosphere. It includes, but is not limited to, what we would call outer space, because in verse 8, the firmament or the expanse is referred to as heaven. Uh, Later in chapter 1, the scripture says that God put the stars, the moon, and the sun, uh, the luminaries, all in the the firmament. Uh, So you have this range from the atmosphere uh, all the way into what we would call outer space. But what did, what did God create on day two? And there's two articles from Answers in Genesis, and I really can't emphasize enough how helpful that, that source is. If you With children, it's a wonderful resource. For adults, it's a wonderful resource. Some of the, the articles are, are, are very, very technical. This one is, I've had to abbreviate it to some, to some extent just because it, it is very compre- uh, comprehensive in nature. But there's a disagreement about what does the word firmament mean? What, where, where did the word expanse come from? Why does, do some translations use the word firmament and some translations use the word uh, expanse. Uh, and so uh, at the bottom, a summary, a careful examination of the Hebrew text uh, leads to the conclusion, number one, that the expanse includes, but it's not limited to outer space where the planets are, the sun, the moon, the stars. Number two, the, it includes, but it's not limited to where the birds fly and the clouds are the face of the expanse. That's the expression that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. The legacy standard uses that expression, specifically the New King James and the Young's literal translation all use the face of the expanse. And number three, you have this somewhat cryptic expression, the waters above, and this is where it gets really interesting, are the outer boundary of the universe. Now, this last week, I've really just enjoyed immensely considering what the outer boundary of the universe looks like. So that's, that's what we're going to touch on. So, uh, top of page seven, um, many people have looked at the firmament or expanse as the atmosphere where the, the birds fly, the, the clouds exist, etc. And there was a time when, uh, and this goes back, and, and after I became a, a, a new believer, and actually when I was in seminary, the, the prevailing understanding was what, what they called the canopy theory. The, the canopy theory is that uh, there was a vapor canopy um, above um, the, the stars, etc., and it surrounded the universe, and the canopy collapsed, and that gave rise to the flood. But that's that's, and it doesn't exist anymore. But that, that it was the canopy theory, and it was it was held for a number of years. It's not widely embraced anymore. One of the main reasons that, that it's not embraced is the scripture speaks of the of the uh, the expanse is still existing. Uh, and so if it collapsed, it wouldn't still exist. So in the Psalms, it, it, it speaks of it as still existing. But you have this word in Hebrew, rakia, uh, and it, it means uh, a number of things. It means outer space, it means the atmosphere, and thirdly, it means the waters outside uh, the, the, the firmament as well. So you've got waters below, and you've got waters above the firmament. And that's where it really gets interesting. And one of the main sources that this article uses is one of the professors that, that Jeff had, uh, actually for his advisor on his THM work, uh, Dr. Bill Barrick, one of the, just a tremendous scholar uh, in Hebrew. And so at the bottom of page 7, uh, it says, I admit that it's mind-boggling to think of water at the outer boundary of the universe, but it's not any more mind-boggling for me to believe that than it is to believe that God created things out of nothing. 
that he parted the Red Sea and the Jordan River, that he became a little baby in Mary's womb, that he walked on water, he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again to create a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be no more sin and no more death. So you're right. When we consider what God has done and what he is doing, it shouldn't really create any problems in our understanding. But what over on the page uh, 8, if you're interested in the sources of some of this research, the articles by Bill Barrett <clears throat> are, are actually referenced for you at the top of page 8. A book on the four views on the historical Adam, uh, and then Searching for Adam, edited by Terry Mortensen. Uh, so those are, if you want to look at the original sources, there's a couple that you can, that you can go to. But another article, what, what were the waters? So God created the waters. Uh, the firmament and the, 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 the purpose of the firmament was to divide the waters from the waters. There were waters under the firmament and there were waters above the firmament. And I've scratched my head over that one for years. What in the world are the, how, what is the firmament and what are the waters under the firmament? What are the waters above the firmament or the expanse? So uh, the, the answer for that, there's a number of questions. Number one is, uh, what are the waters? So we have to define what the waters are. And then secondly, uh, we have to say, well, what is the meaning of the expanse or what's the meaning of the firmament? The, the word firmament suggests something like a, a shell. And as we'll see, what happened in the early translations of the English Bible uh, is that people were influenced by the prevailing cosmology of the day. When you had the Septuagint that was done in the uh, 200 BCE, and then you, it was, then you had uh, the, um, the, the Vulgate uh, 600 years later, the prevailing cosmology of that day was that the, the universe consisted of the earth, and then you had like a bowl, a rigid bowl that surrounded it, and the stars were suspended from this bowl around the earth. That's how people literally looked at creation. And that affected the way that these words were, were translated. So we'll go over to, um, to page 9. When you look at verse 2, uh, without form and void, we, we talked about that. Um, okay, let me, let me skip down a, a little bit further. Um, when we look at the, the, the meaning of this expanse, um, it's important that we, we look at what was the, the thought process at the time. That, that's literally, I'm, I'm summarizing some of this just in the interest of time. Um, when the Hebrew was translated into English, when it was translated into Greek, when it was ultimately translated into Latin, um, if you look at the top of page 10, the Septuagint, which was written uh, maybe second century before Christ, BCE, um, it was translated in Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria, Egypt was a major city of Greek culture and learning at the time. And the understanding, as I mentioned a little bit early, earlier, the cosmology of the day was that you had a, a, the earth, a, a sphere, and that surrounding the earth was a, a transparent celestial bowl, so to speak, uh, and the, 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 the luminaries, the stars, uh, the the, the planets, etc., were all suspended from this. And that's literally how they looked at creation. And so when you had those who translated the Hebrew into the Greek, which is what the Septuagint is, they chose a word, stereoma, which means something hard or something firm. And then later, 600 years later, Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. We call that the Vulgate. That's in the fourth century, 600 years after the Septuagint. And 
they were looking for a word to describe this word rakia, and the word that was chosen, it was actually the same cosmology, the Greek cosmology that, that was affected the Septuagint, uh, but something hard, something that surrounded the universe and, and the planets were suspended from it. And lo and behold, the word that was used by Jerome to translate it into Latin was this Latin word firmamentum, firmamentum. Well, lo and behold, when you had the English Bible translated later into English, uh, they took the word firmamentum and they created a word which had never existed before. They literally took the Latin word firmamentum and created the word firmament. So when you look at the King James, that's where that came from. It, it came from the Latin word firmamentum. Is, is that a good description? Well, the, the, the words that were chosen describe something rigid, describe something hard, that describe a shell. There's nothing implicit in the Hebrew word rakia that suggests anything hard or rigid. And so this was an imposition of the prevailing mindset of the day upon the translators. So they chose a word which reflected their predisposition that you had this shell around the universe. But that was, there was no basis for that other than that was, if I can use the term, the cosmology or the scientific thinking of the day, that's how they saw creation. But you had essentially culture imposing a, a directive on how to translate the Hebrew scriptures, if you're following what I'm saying. A better way of translating it in the predominant way that it's used today is expanse, and that's literally what the word rakia means. It means an expanse. It means something uh, extraordinary that, that God has, has created. And so this word was mistranslated literally for about 2,000 years, uh, and only in the recent translations have they began to use the word expanse. Well, what's, what's interesting is then we get into, well, what is the meaning of, of the heavens or the heavens? And there are three ways that the word heavens, and I'm on page 11 of, of, this, of, the, of the, the notes. Uh, the first is you've got um, where the birds and the clouds are. Uh, that's in, in Genesis 1, 26, 28, and 30. Uh, secondly, you've got uh, that part of the world uh, where the planets are, uh, the astronomical bodies. That's Genesis 22. That, that's really the Abrahamic covenant. Behold the stars in the, in the heavens. And it's the same word, but it talks about the, the, the heavens there. And then third is you have the, the uh, abode of God himself, 2 Corinthians 12, too, the third heavens. Well, it's unlikely that in Genesis they're talking about the third heavens, the, the abode of God himself. So very likely what, what is being referred to is this expanse, this heavens, as it's translated, is literally outer space and the atmosphere. And, and so now I'm going to go over to page 12. So it, it means that you, you've got this expanse, and then you've got waters above and below. So what the scripture is defining in creation, when God said, let there be a firm, a, an expanse, and to separate the waters from the waters, is you have waters below the atmosphere. Okay, that makes sense. And then you have waters above outer space. And that seems very strange, doesn't it? That there would be waters at the perimeter or the edge of the universe. And, and I, I'm going to share something with you that was just amazing to me. This, this, this is down at the bottom of page 12. This leaves the possibility that the waters above the expanse are beyond the realm where we find astronomical bodies. That would mean that there is a shell of water surrounding the universe. A shell of water around the universe would not be possible if the universe were infinite. So the universe must have 
a finite size. Now, if, you're sort of, if your mind is sort of rotating around right now, there's an article I found in July 22, 2011, in the San Bernardino Sun. Caltech astronomers announced Friday, this is back in 2011, the discovery of a massive reservoir of water 100,000 times larger than the sun that contains 140 trillion times more water than all the water in the world's oceans combined. The source is at the edge of the universe. The discovery was made by looking from a distance of 30 billion trillion miles, and this was from Caltech. It was from the Jet Propulsion Lab in 2011. They argue that the light has taken 12 billion years to reach the Earth. There's no reason to believe that, it, it, but that's how they, they, they date things. So it's another demonstration, the, the Jet Propulsion Lab says, that water is pervasive throughout the universe. Catch this, even at the very earliest times. Do you understand what they're saying? What did the scripture say? The scripture says that God created an expanse. That expanse included the atmosphere and it included outer space where the planets are. And the expanse separated the waters below and the waters above. And so if you're wondering what the waters above were, it's literally water at the edge of the universe, which means that the universe is finite in size. It's not infinite in size. And, and so I, I, I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the dimensions and the size of what the Caltech people have measured. And I, I, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, consider this. I mean, it just, it's just, it's, it's stunning. Um, look at these numbers again. I mean, it's, it's like 140 trillion times more water than all the water in the world's oceans combined and a reservoir of water 100,000 times larger than the sun. When God creates something, he, he speaks us into existence. And so you have, there, literally even science, scientists from the Caltech have discovered that there is water beyond outer space. And it has a non-zero temperature, and the reason for that is that if it has a non-zero temperature, it actually radiates and you can measure it. That's how they discovered it. It has a non-zero temperature. And so you have, I don't know if you've seen this article recently, it's not widely published, but, but it literally substantiates Genesis 1 and God creating a firmament, dividing the waters from the waters. Look at the size of what God made. I mean, the, the, the dimensions, and, and I, I said, where do we go with this? And, and my, my personal observation is, I don't know what struggles you're going through right now. I don't know what challenges you have in your life right now what uncertainty you have in your life. But does this not give you confidence that the God who spoke all of this into existence by simply saying, let there be created this, this, this structure where there is outer space and water beyond outer space at an edge of a finite universe with millions of stars and he names every single one of them by name? Is God adequate to meet your needs? Is there anything that God cannot do? Ephesians says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or even imagine. So we've, we've talked about this. As we go through, through the scriptures, we should always be asking ourselves, what does this teach me about God? And what does this teach me about myself? And, and I, I must tell you, it was just so amazing, so humbling, so encouraging 
to spend a week just, just thinking and meditating upon the magnitude and the complexity of what God has made and how it just boggles my mind. I can't understand it, but that's fine. I, I'm not intended to grasp all of this. But I do know that, that, that the God in heaven who spoke all of this has never changed. And he knows my name, and he knows your name, and he knows whatever your situation is, and there is nothing, brothers and sisters, that God cannot do. The arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. So that if this doesn't empower you to pray earnestly and to ask God for big things that are so beyond what you could ever hope for, be encouraged. Let your heart just swell with, with, with enthusiasm and love and, and, and joy over the God who made everything that is and simply said, let there be, and there was, literally, in normal days. And we've gone through why those days are normal and why we should take this, this literally is, is what he said. So God created the heavens and the earth, and it was formless and void, but he filled it in. And, and then we're going to pick up there next week and talk about how he filled it in. We'll talk about day three. We didn't quite get to it today, but we'll pick it up next week, and we'll talk about days four and five as well. We're going to spend a special session on day six, which is when man was created. But just think on these things, and, and so the reason I walk through this definition of firmament versus expanse is so that you would understand that there's nothing rigid, there's no shell around the universe uh, that, that God made. There is this vast expanse, and that's literally the word that God used. And, and then you have waters above and waters below, and, and I've, I've always wondered for almost all my Christian life, what are the waters above the expanse? And now I'm beginning to understand that there is something I'll never see, at least this side of heaven. And, and God created something that is so vast that, that these, the Jet Propulsion Lab just got a little glimpse of it some years ago. They've never even known that it existed, but guess what? It's a matter of record now that there's water in outer space that's outside. You probably haven't heard that recently. I don't know that that article would be published today, to be honest with you. But it, it's, 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 it's been measured, it's been observed, and that's the God that we, that we pray to, that's the God that we serve, that's the God that made us. Father, I just